John chapter 6 in your Bibles. John 6, we'll look at verses 22 to 35. That's a little different than what's in your bulletin, admittedly, I'm calling an audible. For those of you who are not uh, football people, that's uh, when the quarterback changes the play while standing on the line. Uh, my original intention was to go for 10 yards. I just wanted to get, you know, the next first down. But I think that in light of the topics that are covered here, both one, satisfaction, the second being election, that we need to go for five on this play and then try to cover the next five on the next play. So this Sunday, we're going to cover the satisfaction portion Next Sunday, buckle up and get ready, we're going to cover the election portion. A little more debatable for some, not me, but for some. But I think it'll be good for us just to focus on this, on this one aspect. John 6, uh, 22 to 35. On the next day... The crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal." Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. To fully grasp what's going on here, I need you to think with me. I want you to imagine, just for a moment, uh, an art gallery. If you want to make it concrete, think of the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., with its majestic stately columns 
It's perfectly framed pictures and portraits throughout. In this gallery, I want you to see with mind's eye a a studious individual, thick glasses, briefcase, papers sticking out the side. This particular individual is none other than a PhD candidate working on a dissertation. And as such, he has to come up with some serious material for something that will take the better part of his life to accomplish. 200 plus pages on art, critical theory. (laughs) How is he going to come up with it? And so he himself is trying to work directly from the sources as any good writer would do. He makes his way through the particular gallery that he's studying and head down pen to paper. He is making notes You can occasionally hear the whisper of a voice recording, and when at all possible, he is examining with great detail the little placards off to the side that give the official representation of what's going on in any given painting. Now, the sad reality of this particular individual is that while he can actually write an informed paper on the artwork that he himself is criticizing, it is still possible for him to not actually enjoy the art. He can see all the placards, all the signs, but miss the point for which the author or artist actually painted the thing in the first place. That's a brief picture of what's going on here in John chapter 6. Jesus, as the artist, if you will, has conveyed something amazing. He has fed his people in the wilderness in a miraculous way that would evoke memories of the Exodus itself. He has trampled the sea in the private audience of his disciples, that thing which they would fear the most, reminding them of the dominance that he displayed over the sea when he delivered them as his people. And the question that that would naturally come from such an amazing story, the only one that's recorded in all four Gospels, is, why? What's this about? I warned you a couple weeks ago, I advised you, I guess would probably be a better way to say it, that that particular passage, John 6, 1 through 21, with all of its amazing visuals, invites you to be both stunned at who Jesus is and satisfied in what he's done. And so I ask those of you who were here or those of you who can even recall the story, maybe you weren't here, What practical impact has reflecting on Jesus trampling over the waters of the sea and his providing for the 20,000 plus in the wilderness, what practical impact, if any, has it had on you? I think there's two potentials here. One is a misapplication. I tried to warn you. I tried I said, look, listen to me carefully, that you're going to hear this story and you're going to be tempted to apply this thing one way, but if you really want to find out how Jesus intends for you to understand this, you need to keep reading the rest of John 6. 
Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I would be interested in knowing how many actually went home and read the rest of it. Oh, well, thank you. I, I got a volunteer anyway. It is easy to misapply, and you're going to see this. I mean, it is, it is so deadly dangerous, I don't even know how to convey it to you fully, that you could actually grasp the story of Jesus providing for these people and trampling the sea and miss the eternal point. So we're going to clarify that today, don't worry. But I think there's another thing, though, that's probably true of most of you, and, and that is, okay, you wanted to apply it, you wanted to live it out, you wanted it to have impact, you, you wanted to be satisfied, but it just kind of got lost in the white noise of Bible stories. And you, we didn't really have time by the time we, we put together all the details to, to unpack why it matters, and, and that's okay. We can't expect one study of Scripture to give us everything we'd ever need. So we're going to spend more time on it together today. We're going to impress that story upon our hearts. And here's the great thing. We're not going to be looking at the little sign, the little placard. We're going to look at the portrait itself. And we're going to receive, this is amazing, the interpretation from the artist. Jesus himself in these verses speaks to the significance of the events that preceded. If you want to know why he did it, why it really matters, you want it to impact you in an appropriate way, listen to the artist himself. Most people title this section the bread of life discourse. The bread of life discourse. Uh, It begins here in verses uh, 25, uh, well, 22, kind of some historical background, but 25 is where the conversation starts, and it doesn't really end until verse 70. It's a large chunk of Scripture, but in it, Jesus is doing nothing less than explaining the significance of the sign that he had showed earlier, and you're going to note a couple things about the significance. Jesus is in the plainest way saying, I am that bread of eternal life. You must feed on me by faith. I don't care if you're six years old or 96, you can grasp that, at least intellectually. Jesus is saying in this discourse, I am the bread of eternal life, therefore you must feed on me by faith. And he's going to invite people to come and partake of him by faith through like two aspects of the way that he provides eternal life. The first one is that he is the provision of eternal life. The second is that he is the preserver of eternal life. Basically, he's going to say, hey, you want eternal life provided and preserved? (laughs) Come to me. Today, all we have time to do is to look at his argument for provision. That is going to go from uh, verses 22 to 35. Part two of this message will be preached next week, Lord willing, and we will look at the preservation aspect. But let's just now look at how Jesus argues for people to come and feed on him by faith as the provider of eternal life. And before you ever get there in this story... You need some historical background, that stuff that you would easily read over. I want you to understand something that's going on here historically. These people, 
This crowd that originally uh, partook of that miracle, they are now obsessed with Jesus. Have any of you ever seen, or maybe you can recall from history, those moments in which the Beatles first arrived in the United States and there were just crowds of young women trying to get into their particular concerts? It's an interesting thing. You can find it on YouTube. Just look up Beatles concert fans. They're called groupies or roadies, these people who were obsessed with, with seeing these young men at, at their prime, at their peak, screaming at the top of their lungs. They were obsessed. In a similar way, you need to understand something. The people who are responding to Jesus here are obsessed with him. I think sometimes we think of them as rather stoic. It's just like, oh, Jesus is teaching. Let's listen in. You got anything to do? No, I don't have anything to do. Let's, let's listen to Jesus. I want you to get this. They, after this miracle, they are ravenous. I mean, do you remember what happened back in verse 15? It said that they were going to force him to become king. Like, how riled up do you have to be for an individual to literally force them to take an office? Jesus retreated, you remember? He sends his disciples on the way. He says, guys, I'm going to basically go pray. You guys meet me back at home base. Capernaum was where they were operating out of at the time. If you're following my little mental map here of the Sea of Galilee, it's kind of shaped like a kite. And basically, they're over here, excuse me, they're over here on the west side. They need to go over back to the, excuse me, they're over on the east side. They need to be back on the west side. So he sends them on their little boat trip. They go on their own. Well, guess what? Jesus will join them eventually, but here's the cool thing. These people, they hang out in that mountainous area all stinking night. They don't go back home. Look at your text. Look at verse 25. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Notice that. Remember, they're in a wilderness. There's nowhere to buy food. These people, with their children, hang out all night long, hoping that Jesus will show back up. This is obsessed. And then they start doing some investigative work. Because the sun rises the next day, and now all of a sudden, Jesus isn't there. So they put together, like, a two and two, and they see that, okay, he came here on one boat... Uh, and that one boat is gone, but Jesus wasn't in that boat. And then this is, this is so interesting. Verse 23, it says the other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Now, uh, look at your map again, uh, the visual, if you'll borrow this for a second. Tiberias is over here. They're up here. It's at least five or six miles. Somehow, the people in Tiberias overnight heard about what had happened in that northern shore of the sea the day before. People show up there on their boats. So what you've got is a crowd of people searching around for Jesus. You've got boats showing up who are looking for him as well because they want to get the free food. And now they all get together and say, hey, let's go to Capernaum. He was operating out of there. And they jump in the boats, like truly commandeer the boats, (laughs) to get back over to Capernaum. They have gone 
without sleep. They have stayed up all night. They are doing anything and everything they can to follow Jesus. Friends, this is not just a meandering crowd. And by the way, can I just remind you of something? When I talk about something being five miles away or seven miles away, there is no automatic transportation. We're talking five miles of rowing this way, seven miles of rowing that way, uh, maybe 13 miles of walking one way or the other. I mean, just imagine walking to North Fort Myers this afternoon. Like, how badly would you want to see someone if you were willing to walk to northern Fort Myers? That's obsessed, friends. And you would think, you would think, wow, they must really love Jesus. I don't know anybody that would, like, give that kind of effort and energy and expense. I mean, I assume they have jobs. I assume that they need to keep the farm running. I assume that whatever trade it is that they're doing needs to continue, and yet they've abandoned it all, and they're just looking for him. And notice how Jesus responds to them. Verse 24 gives you the the end of this. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats, they commandeered the boats, they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus, verse 25, and when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, this is funny to me, "Uh, Rabbi, when did you come here? Uh, They're trying to play it cool. Like, they don't want to come across as obsessed. They're just like, oh, you happen to be here in Capernaum. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) okay, I'm not going to dwell on that too much, but the the truth is, like, they try to play it off, and Jesus will have none of it. And what takes place here, I'm going to tell you the story, and then I'll unpack the significance. What takes place here is Jesus' threefold attempt to clarify for them why they should be seeking him. You could imagine it, sorry to use a second sports analogy, but you could imagine it as like a parent, like tossing a wiffle ball at a child in the gentlest way possible so that they can connect, so that they can grasp. Jesus is going to toss the wiffle ball of this truth. Here it is. The truth is, feed on me by faith, for in me is eternal life. He's going to lob this at them three times, and they're going to whiff it three times. They're going to miss three times. If you want to be able to follow what's going on in these verses, I want you to imagine truth being tossed and then truth being missed three times. First toss, you ready? Jesus ignores their superficial comment, and he goes right to the heart of what he he knows to be true about them. Here's his first pitch, you ready? Verse 26, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Notice this, they call him rabbi, they call him teacher, he takes up the position of teaching, and he starts to speak with absolute authority. That truly, truly, anytime he says that, it's like, all right, listen up, pay attention to what I'm about to say, I'm going on record, here's the facts, and he presents them with three different little facts here. This is not anything that you need to write down, but it helps me keep it organized. First is a condemnation. He condemns them. He says, 
hey, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He's critiquing them, if you will, because they weren't looking at what Jesus did as a sign that pointed to something better. They just wanted full stomachs. Like, that's the facts. They just wanted to feel good. They wanted their bellies full. That's what Jesus says. And so he condemns them. He says in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes. Man, they had done some work. I don't know if you've ever rode seven miles before. I haven't. <laughs> but they stay up all night. They go on a hunt. They row seven miles to find. I mean, like he says, stop. Don't, don't work for food that perishes, but for food that endures unto eternal life. I mean, the point of this is, is pretty clear. Like, what you have is them striving for that which does not ultimately satisfy. And we know this to be true. I mean, food, as much as I love it, never actually gets the job done. I see it in my house all the time. We go, we go to Sam's. We load up the stinking car with food from Sam's. Like it fills up the entire back seat. And by the time I get home, it's no less than three hours later, the kids are like, there ain't nothing to eat. I'm like, well, my $175 going out of my checking account tells me otherwise. It doesn't satisfy. They can eat 5,000 Pop-Tarts, but it's not going to satisfy there, I don't care if it's the best meal you've ever had, the best vacation you ever went on, you always need more. You're looking for the next one. So Jesus says, stop. Don't seek me for your temporal desires. Bad plan. Don't do that. Condemned. And instead, he commends them for something. He commends something to them. He says, okay, if you're gonna, if you're gonna seek, if you're gonna work for something or strive for something, this is beautiful. He says, strive for that food that endures unto eternal life. And then he adds this, this is awesome. That the Son of Man will give to you. Notice the first. The first was, uh, don't work for the food. That doesn't satisfy. The second is, instead, get the food that satisfies for eternity that I will give to you. It is a gift. It's obvious. He is challenging their ultimate. And friends, I want to pause in this story for a second and just ask, like, for what are we striving? What is it that is our ultimate, our reason for existence? This is a, a, ch a challenge for us all. It may not be just food, but how many times do we explain the rigors of our life with, I just got to put food on the table. I just got to get through the daily grind. I got, I got bills to pay and mouths to feed. You ever, anybody ever think that way? It's easy to get into the temporal stuff. And yet Jesus says, no, 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 that is not. That is not at all what you are about. You need to be about that which is eternal, eternal life. And 
can I take a uh, theological moment here with you? Eternal life, friends, especially for those of you that are maybe visiting today or you're not in Christ, you hear eternal life and it would be easy for you to think, oh, well, that just means some type of spiritual life after death, uh, heaven. That, that could be an aspect of it. But let me tell you what eternal life means in the book of John. It's twofold. There's a present and a future. The present part of eternal life is easy to explain in light of its opposite, eternal death. Eternal death means that God is angry with you rightly on account of your sin. It's like his righteous wrath is being expressed against an individual and they will have to endure the just punishment for sin. That's death. This is the opposite life. Life is things are good with you and eternal God. He approves of you. He is not expressing wrath towards you. And if you want to see that, go back and read John three sixteen and the verses that surround that. Eternal death is condemnation. Eternal life is justification. It's being right with God. That is a present tense reality. So eternal life isn't just the out there one day, someday. It is something that you can have right now. But there's a second aspect of eternal life, and that is future. But here's where you've got to be careful. I'm going to be like so precise, and it's going to annoy a few of you. It isn't just life after death. It's life after life after death. It isn't just life after death. It's life after life after death. When Jesus speaks of eternal life, he is talking about the resurrected state. That when the new heavens and the new earth are created and your soul slash spirit is reconstituted with your body and you enjoy a physical world forevermore, don't let all dogs go to heaven inform your conception of heaven. It is not ethereal existence floating on clouds, staring at Jesus like a moth does to flame. It is actually being recreated in a physical body for a physical world, loving and enjoying him in tactile and real ways. It is something amazing. So Jesus says, strive for that. Why would you strive for just this life? Why not strive for eternal life, acceptance with God, and enjoyment of that acceptance in the new heavens and new earth forever? Does this make sense? There's the pitch. All right, now let's see how they do at handling it. Verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, that's a miss, friends. He's saying, partake of me for eternal life. And he just uses the word work. All they hear is work. And they're like, okay, well, what work do we do to please God enough to get this kind of bread? They just want the physical food. What must we do to be doing the works of God this is a, a total miss. Uh, they're not getting it. They have lost here on this. And, and this is why it's so, so devastating. Because Jesus said, this is something I'll give you. And they're saying, all right, well, how do we get it? How do we pay for it? I love the way that one pastor explained this, I heard years past. He said, imagine if you were to come over to my house uh, after, after church today for dinner. 
Can't do it, got sick kids. But let's just imagine that it would actually happen. And my wife, just to use the old southern phrase, puts on the dog. Like it's everything that you would possibly want out of a meal. From the appetizer to the meal to, it's July 4th, apple pie with ice cream kind of dessert. I mean, it's just everything. You enjoy the experience. Uh, We enjoy your company. But how would we feel if at the conclusion of this meal and everybody's saying their goodbyes, coffee has been had, games have been played, they're like, oh, 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 let me get out my wallet. I want to make sure that that I actually pay you guys for this. And we're like, no, no, this was a gift. This was, this was for you. They're like, no, look, I, I know how this really works. Here, I'm just going to put a 100 here, let it cover your cost. You guys do what you want with it. And you walk out the door. It's offensive. It was a gift. It was something that we had provided. It's exactly what these guys are doing here. They're like, Jesus has just said, I'm going to give you eternal life. And they're like, okay, so how much does it cost? Let me get my wallet. What works can we do to get this? Friends, that's a miss. That's a strike. Strike one. So Jesus gets the ball back, and he says, okay, let me try this again. All right, here's the second pitch. I mean, he's going to lob this thing as gingerly as he possibly can so that they can grasp this truth. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Do you see? That's simple. Hey, here's how you get the eternal life. Just believe in me. Just trust in me. In other words, this bread that endures into eternal life is bread that is freely given. And what do they do with it? Do they make contact? Absolutely not. Verse 30, strike two, they said to him, Then, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, I think that this second miss is fascinating. Jesus has just said, look, guys, just don't make this too complicated. Just believe in me. You'll have eternal life. That's what you really need. And you know what they say? They said, you know what? We need a sign, actually, to know that we should believe in you. Now, is anybody else in the room remembering what's going on and thinking like, well, what in the world happened the day before? Like, what propelled them to go find them in the first place? It was a sign. I mean, they saw him feed 20,000 plus people. <laughs> I, I just, I'm not a psychologist, but I'm trying to do, I'm looking at this and I'm like, what is going on? And I'm just thinking, they just want more. They want more. It's never enough. Because, remember, the physical food will never truly satisfy. They had heaven-baked bread and fish. But only for the temporal stomach. It does not satisfy. So they say, do more. And look, this is the funny part to me. They said, hey, we need you to to prove it. We need you to prove who you are so we can believe in you. And we've got an idea. We were reading in our Bibles, there was this spot in the Old Testament where God gave his people bread from heaven. How about that for a sign? Uh, Friends, you know what this would be like. It'd be like you, like in an argument with, with someone, and it's like atheist kind of thinking, agnostic. Hey, I want a sign. I want a sign. 
And they said, well, ask God for a sign. He said, okay, here's a sign. Um, God, somewhere in your word, I know it says you provide for people. So if you're real, put a million dollars in my bank account by tomorrow morning. This is only so that I can believe. I just want a million dollars so I can use it however I jolly well please, and I need it by tomorrow. That's what the guys are doing. They just want food. It's like, they even quote a Bible verse. Like, hey, we've got an idea. Look, you know what? Don't just do any sign. Do a sign that will feed our stomachs again. Because frankly, we've been up all night and we're hungry. It's a miss. It's a total miss. And by everyone's accounting, this is another strike. They just keep missing the point. Jesus is the essential provider of eternal life, not temporal stuff. That's what he's saying. So he's going to toss the truth to them one more time in this interchange in verses 32 to 33. Here's the third pitch. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, notice another authoritative announcement. By the way, friends, when you see that truly, truly, I say to you, or in the other Gospels, it's normally recorded as truly, I say to you, I want you to think of it as um, what you would hear in a courtroom here in the United States. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's a, it's a testimony statement. It, it undergirds what you're about to say. That's the equivalent culturally of what Jesus is doing. So he's saying, all right, listen up. I'm going to tell you the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Um... I want to do a little contrast with you to help you grasp this. Jesus understands their problem. They're looking to the past, and they're focused on a human person. That's their problem. They're looking to the past, and they're focused on a human person. So they're saying, they're looking at what God did back in the wilderness, and they think that Moses is the instrument, the human instrument by which all this was coming about. And Jesus was like, all right, stop looking to the past, stop looking to the person. Instead, look to the present and look to the person of God himself, not a man, but to the Father. Do you see the difference between the two? He says, you guys are focused on Moses. You're thinking about the past. Here's what you need to pay attention to. Right now, in this moment, notice the present tense in your Bibles. It's, it's ongoing, durative. God is giving you, God the Father himself is giving you bread for eternal life. The true food. The true food. All that stuff back here, it was just a shadow. It was a shadow of the substance which is eternal life provided by me. The Father has sent me so that you can enjoy this. And then Jesus says it clearly as he can in verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He personalizes it. He's saying, God sent me so that you could feed on me by faith and thereby enjoy eternal life. But you know what they do? You would think that they'd get it this time. It's so simple. And with their little bat, they strike out again. Because they're not asking for a person, they're still asking for a possession. Sir, 
give us this bread always. Okay, just give us the bread. Just, okay, you, you have access to that physical bread. We want the bread. Therefore, give it to us, please, always. The way that it comes across, actually, in the original language is continue to supply us with this ongoing bread. And then things get interesting here. Because Jesus is basically, he's going to switch tactics. He's going to pick up the little wiffle ball, if you will. He's going to walk over to the dugout, and he's going to grab the tea. The little tea that you use in tea ball. He's going to set it up on the base. He's going to stick the ball on top of it so that they don't even have to do any kind of a hard swing. All they have to do is just make contact with the truth. He's going to make it as plain as he possibly can. And here it is. Verse 35. I am the bread of life. Men, women, children, grasp this. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the essential provider of eternal life. You must partake of me. Friends, here's the the truth. We move from story to significance. It's not hard to understand verse 35. You need to get... This reality, if you're going to live out this text with integrity, apart from Christ, nothing ultimately satisfies. Apart from Christ, nothing ultimately satisfies. One put it this way, the best of fishing trips must be followed by another fishing trip. The most exquisite meal still leaves you hungry. C.S. Lewis said it this way, I cannot find a cup of tea which is big enough or a book that is long enough. You can play the best racquetball game, be at your best, but it has to be followed by another game. You can have a great Sunday dinner, but it has to be followed by a good breakfast in the morning. You can wear the fanciest, most chic clothes, but you will have to have new clothes next year. Maybe we could sum it up this way. Let's return to our eager note-taker. He's filled up his books. The laptop battery is almost dead. He's scoured all the signs, and he thinks he has a grasp on a subject. But only if the eager note-taker is prepared to stop and ask what these signs are for, will he ever actually enter into the world of the artist? What Jesus is doing here, what he has done in verses 1 through 21, bears the marks that say, this is the kind of thing that in Israel Scripture God himself does. The wilderness feeding, the walking on the water speak of this in ways that, though quite different, are both related to the Exodus story. I am your deliverance. I am your salvation. I am what you need. I am the bread of life. Eternal life in context. Partake 
of me. Feast on me by faith. So, what does this then look like for us? If, okay, that's the point. If we've put the ball on the tee for ourselves today, what would contact look like practically? I think there's two ways in which this would primarily affect us. Again, I'm going to press something in a little more deeply. The first is that we would respond in faith. Like the response Jesus has already called for. He's already said it. I don't have to give you 12 steps to do this. It's his response that he's calling for is faith. Feed on me by faith. Partake of me. Come to me. He says what he wants. Believe in me. Come to me. They're the same. Hebrew parallelism. He who comes to me will never thirst. He who believes in me will never be hungry. Like that, they're, it's, they're one and the same. And that is what must be done. We, we live in a world, friends, of, of ever-evaporating satisfaction. Though the struggle for life, and we need to remember this, the, our, our struggle for life here in the 21st century, here I am talking, July 2022, I'm going to date this thing. Right now, where we live especially, you don't feel the same physical threats to eternal life as them. Let's just be honest. You're, you're not clamoring for food in your stomach. In fact, some of us are trying to lose some weight. So it's really hard for you to enter into the urgency with which Jesus speaks of himself as the bread of life. But here's the deal. Despite all of our medical advances, despite all that our economy has been able to provide for us, despite our material abundance and our political stability, many of us still live with that ongoing and nagging angst and unrest. While we may not have a fear for life, we do fear on missing out on the good life. It's funny, I, I don't normally read Karl Marx, but I was reading Marx this week for another project I was working on, and I found it interesting that even Marx, for all of his problems, understood that the person who's working his butt off in the factory feels this angst, this anxiety that cannot be solved, and so he erects a system that he thinks will ultimately bring about a solution. Communism is evil. But it was an attempt to solve this very thing. The factory worker at that time and place were working their fingers to the bone and yet they could not be satisfied. So he thought that he would erect a different system to provide that kind of satisfaction. We all know of this dysphoria, this displacement, this unrest in our souls. And Jesus knows it too and he says, I will satisfy. Believe that. Trust me for that. Place your faith in me for that. He provides that which we most desperately need, and he provides it in abundance. You and I think we think we need a little more money, the right kind of romantic relationship, this or that home improvement, this body fat percentage. this health outcome. 
But what you really need is spiritual life as opposed to death. You need God's acceptance as opposed to his wrath. You need his smile as opposed to his frown. And the only way to get that is not through raw effort or a religious ritual, but through receiving by faith Jesus, who is the bread of life, the one who secured eternal life for all who would believe in him by pleasing God on their behalf, satisfying God's wrath through his death and demonstrating his vindication by God and all associated with him through his resurrection. This is why you need Jesus. This is what Jesus satisfies. And here's the deal, friends. It gets better because for all who do feed on him by faith, for all who partake of him as the bread of eternal life, they not only will enjoy life here, acceptance with God, but they will enjoy life after life. Life hereafter. All those things that your body craves and longs for, that that you wish that you could taste and that you could experience and that you could feel and that you could touch and that you could have and that you could handle, you will taste and touch and see and have and handle in eternal life, in the new heavens and the new earth. Just like God had intended back in Genesis 1 and 2. And so I call on some of you who are here today, doubtless, you have tried to find pleasure and satisfaction in other ultimates. Believe in Jesus now. Come to Him by faith for life. So the first practical point of this passage is that we would respond in faith, that, that we'd come to Him for the solution in faith being the response for the meeting of this particular need, that the problem of dissatisfied souls. Here's the last one. You need to remember what you really want. I say this to those of you who are already in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you need to respond in faith. If you are in Christ, you need to remember what you really want. Can I help you, church family? I want to I serve you well because I've been so served well by this text. Remember what you really want. I get it. I realize that most of you in here probably have already received Jesus as the bread of eternal life by faith. You fed on him by faith. Your soul has been satisfied. And yet, here's the encouraging reminder for you. While your soul may be satisfied, admittedly, your body is not your body's not. Some of you right now are hungry, and you're like, come on, man. I'm believing in Jesus, but I still want lunch. I get it. Your soul may be satisfied, but your body is not. And I think you need to understand that. You live in an unredeemed body that does not fully correspond one-to-one with the existence of your immaterial soul. And so what you have to do is remind yourself that you've been satisfied in Jesus because your body will trick you into thinking that you're not. You feel hunger and thirst. Your endocrine system still provokes fight-or-flight responses. Your nerves still fire off regular signals of pain and weakness. 
Sexual desire, it's alive and well, that's craving. All these things, never finally satisfied, always a new threat, always a new opportunity, always a new desire. We all have hopes and fears and dreams and ambitions, and I want to tell you something, it's okay. It's okay to feel physical longing or dissatisfaction. It's part of having a human body. But you need to remember something. You remember that what you ultimately need has already been satisfied. See, here's the deal, friends. Our body will trick us into responding a couple ways that I want to address. If you feel perpetual discontent and ingratitude, even though you're in Jesus, I would submit that that is not an aching of your soul, that is an aching of your physical body. Some of you will sense it in uh, discontent. You just want a little more. You think you need something else. Some of you will uh, signal this through anger and frustration for unaccomplished goals. If I were to stereotype, women often find themselves in the discontent situation. Men often find themselves in the perpetually frustrated situation because they want a new goal. They want a new thing. And Christians feel this too. I, I get it. And you know what? The, the, the hymnist said it this way. You remember it, friends, don't you? It's that, that beautiful hymn, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. What I love about William Cooper was he was real with his emotions. And in the third verse, he said it, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I don't want anyone who is actually in Christ this morning to, to think that somehow they may not actually be in Christ because they still have desire, they still have need. All I'm telling you is that is physical. Your soul has indeed been satisfied, and so you pray, just like Cooper, that God would seal your heart and that you would remember that you've been satisfied. You would remember that you have what you need. It reminds me of kids, uh, this is old school, I'm going to date myself here. I remember back in the day, It'd get like around November, and all of a sudden, the Sears Robot catalog would show up at my house. I mean, it was like this thick, colorful pages, and it would just flip it right back to the toys. And like, here I am, fat and happy as an eight-year-old. I mean, every need is met. Everything is satisfied. I am safe. I am cared for. I am provided for. I live in a great house. I mean, I go to a good school. I've got everything I could possibly imagine. And all of a sudden, I start flipping through the Sears catalog, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I need this new plastic junk toy that's going to end up in the yard sale next year. (laughs) Did I have what I needed? Yes. But was I tempted to think I needed something else? Yes. Uh, Friends, uh, the secular Sears Roebuck catalog is flipping across your mental eye on a regular basis, and your body is responding, and that is okay. So how do you combat that? You remember, you remember that you've already been satisfied, that you already have what you truly need. You've forgotten what you truly need. And so a text like this, with its amazing signs and and what Jesus has done, it stuns us back into reality like, oh, he's the source. 
Oh, yeah, he's got me covered. I, I totally forgot. We're prone to wonder, and so we pray, God, seal us, and so we just need to remember. Remember what we ultimately need for eternal life. It has been satisfied by him. We keep preaching the gospel to our restless hearts. We partake, I say this to you very practically, we partake of the means of grace with abandon. What are the means of grace? Word, prayer, and church. If the siren song of the secular Sears Roebuck catalog and its equivalent is constantly calling out to you, you need to sing a louder song. So what is it? How do we tune in? The Word of God, read, ingested, thought about, dwelled upon, prayer, asking God regularly for His help, enlisting others to pray in similar ways, and then church. This last one's interesting because uh, most people just think church means showing up to a building. But when the reformers who first coined this term means of grace actually were talking about the church, they were talking about the, the institution in which, I am not kidding, like the signs were exercised, like communion. You know what, why communion is so helpful for the battle for satisfaction in Jesus? Because it's tactile. You can see it. You can taste it. You can touch it. You can smell it. Word and prayer, those, those are things that we hear. Those are things that we say. Now we have a reminder of God's grace through the, the physical senses. And that's why churches used to do this every week, because they just wanted to keep reminding people that Jesus is satisfied. His body has been broken for you. The, you have life. His blood has been shed. Your blood will not be shed. His blood's been shed. You have what you need. And so we remember. And we're satisfied. So what is it that you crave these days? What do you fear right now? Where is it that on this July 4th weekend you are unsettled in angst? Wherever it is, whatever it is, remember, by faith, Jesus has satisfied your greatest need. Righteousness provided, wrath absorbed, resurrection life both here and hereafter assured. We've reminded ourselves through the preached word. Now let's remind ourselves through the partaken word of communion.